Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is good to see you. How are you this morning? Okay. How are you this morning? Okay, very good. I need you to talk to me a little bit uh, this morning. Uh, my name is Father Jamal Scarlett. I'm, uh, if you don't know me, I'm one of, our, one of the visiting priests here uh, at Christ the Redeemer Anglican Church. Uh, I moonlight as a chaplain uh, for the United States Navy, <laughs> uh, and so it's, it, it is a great opportunity to be before you this morning. We have a difficult text before us. Uh, the text is that I've decided to spend a lot of my time with is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through chapters 6, 9. And if 521 through 33 were not already difficult, um, get ready uh, for verses one, uh, chapters 6, verses 1 through 9. So I'd like for us to read that before we, we go into our time together. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Thank you. It says this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants or slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both master, both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, in the early, early mid to mid second century, there was a letter that was penned to, that we now call uh, the letter to Diognetus. It's an anonymous letter, that, and we don't, so we don't know who wrote it, uh, but we do know the author is writing to a potential convert. He's trying to persuade him that the Christian faith is true. It's one of the earliest writings that we, that we have apart from the New Testament that is a defense of the Christian faith. And one of the interesting things about this letter is how the writer gives a description for, for how Christians related to the rest of society, how they operated in the world. And I'd just like to uh, listen to a few, have you listen to a few brief descriptions or passages from uh, this letter. It says this, it says, for Christians are not distinguished from the rest of mankind either in nationality or in language or in customs. They dwell in cities of Greeks and barbarians as the lot of each is cast and follow the native customs in dress and food and other arrangements of life. Yet the constitution of their citizenship, which they set forth is marvelous and confessedly contradicts expectation. They dwell in their own countries, but only as sojourners, 
They bear their share, their share in all things as citizens, and they endure all hardships as strangers. Every foreign country is a fatherland to them, and every fatherland is a foreign country. They marry like all other men, and they beget children, but they do not cast away their offspring. They have meals in common, but they do not share their marriage bed. They find themselves in the flesh, yet they do not live after the flesh. They love all men and are persecuted by all men. They are insulted, are insulted and they respect. They revile or are reviled and they bless. Their existence is on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. The early defender of the faith is writing to Diognetus and, and he says to him, do you know why you should join these Christians? Do you know why you should become a Christian? Look at how they operate in society. Right? Look at how they relate to everybody in the world. Right? Yes, they, they are just like everybody else in custom, but they don't follow the custom the way that everybody else does. Right? They, they marry and they have children, but they don't cast off their offspring. Now, in the, in the, uh, the Greco-Roman world, it wasn't uncommon uh, to leave your children to the elements if you didn't think that you, you could or didn't desire to raise a child. Right? So they would cast them off and leave them, uh, leave them in, uh, in nature, and eventually they would die. Right? That, that, was, that was a form of abortion that they practiced in the early, um, the early first century. Right? And the author says to Diognetus, we have children too, but we don't cast them off. Right? They, are, they have a plan, and they, God has a plan and a purpose for each and every life. Right? Christians also, they share their table. They're hospitable, but they don't share their marriage bed. Right? We share a lot of things, but we don't share that. Right? Right? It was not uncommon uh, to have an open marriage bed in the Greco-Roman world. Right? And he says we have much in common but we don't do that, right? Christianity changes the home, Diognetus. And all you have to do is look at a Christian home and know that it's different, that it's not like other homes. Their household order is different. Now, imagine if, if the author of this letter were writing in our day, right, to a potential convert, do you think that he could make the same argument about Christianity today? Do you think that if, if, if he were looking into our homes, the way that we operate, the way that we live, do you think that he could say, Diognetus, Christianity changes the home? Look. Right? And by home, I don't mean, or I mean the life that you live when you're not here at church. Right? When you're not around the Christian community. The life you live when it's just you and your spouse and your kids or your boyfriend or girlfriend or fiance or roommates or just by yourself. Right? Does the message that we hear on Sunday morning, that we sing about, that, that we participate in through the sacrament, right? does that message of the gospel shape you? Right? Does it follow you home when you leave the church, or, or, or does it get lost somewhere in the drive? Right? And that, that is what Paul is talking about here in our passage. 
Um, last week's lectionary reading through Ephesians, Paul taught us that Christians should be appraising people, right? That as they are under the influence of the Holy Spirit, they, they sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to God from their hearts. They are a grateful people. And Paul extends his call to us to walk in love, not only in the gathered community, but in the deepest parts of our lives. Right? God wants his story to form and shape our most intimate relationships. Husbands and wives, children and parents, bond servants and masters. And he grounds the discussion here in the work of Christ and what Christ has done. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take each of those relationships separately and then, and then finally ask us to consider um, how we are to move ahead. Amen? Very good. And so the first thing uh, we see with husbands and wives uh, is that Christian marriages are to reflect the gospel. That's... that's ground zero, right? This is, for Christians, this is a very unique calling, right? That, as, as Father Brian said yesterday, it's, if a husband and wife are a part of the Christian community, then, then we have the unique opportunity to, to reflect something profound, something St. Paul wrestles with as he speaks of it, and he calls it a mystery. And why does he do that? Right? Because there's something about marriage that gives us a glimpse that gives us a taste uh, in, uh, of the relationship of Jesus Christ to his church. And so as a, as a married man, I have the opportunity to, to give a portrait of the gospel, right, of the good news of what God has done for us, his relentless pursuit of us to win us back. Right? And so Paul, Paul begins this section with wives. Now, this is a, a section that women love to hear, right? And because it's so good, uh, we're going to delay our gratification and come back to it. Amen? <laughs> so, so, husbands, uh, we will start with you this morning. If you look at verse 25 with me, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Right? Now, in my, in my time as a priest and, and chaplain, I've heard uh, many ladies say during premarital counseling in no uncertain terms, why are we called to submit and all he's called to do is love? Well, um, I think that's a hard question, right? Uh, but I, I think the answer to that question um, comes in the definition of what it means to love here, right? To love is to love as Christ loves the church, right? So much so that he gave himself up for her, right? And so to follow Christ means that husbands, men, you are called by God. It is your responsibility in the marriage to die, to give yourself up in everything to the flourishing of the woman you have committed yourself to. Christ has done so for his church, and by giving himself, for, himself up for her, thus making her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water through the word that he might present her to himself as a radiant bride without stain or wrinkle, as the text says, 
And in the same way, husbands, you should love your wives. Right? So what it means to be a husband is, is to give yourself up for her, uh, to own the responsibility of washing her in the water of God's word so that the spirit might work. Right? You can't make her holy. Only God can do that. But, but you bear a responsibility before God for the flourishing of that woman. Right? And, and so the, the image that Christ is, is presenting here in the church uh, is the image of a wedding. Right? And, and just yesterday, we had the opportunity to celebrate a wedding uh, between our very own Thomas, now his name is Thomas Jordan, not Jordan Thomas, and Olivia Catherine um, O'Byrne. And as, as the wedding began, the bride comes down the aisle adorned with this beautiful white wedding dress representing her splendor and radiance as she enters into the marriage. Right? And I think, um, I think Father Brian um, asked Tom, uh, Thomas Jordan to sort of close his mouth a few times. I, his jaw kept dropping um, for some reason. Right? And if, but, but Father, you know, Father Brian uh, charged both of them, especially, especially Thomas on this point, right, that in order to love, in order to, to nourish and cherish his wife as his own body, he must remember that it's not about him, right, that he's responsible before God for his bride's spiritual well-being, among other things. Amen? Right? And, and it's in light of that marriage point, uh, that marriage portrait of the gospel, that, that Paul begins to unpack this, and he says, then, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church. And he goes on, and, he, and at the end of the chapter, he says, husbands, each, of you, um, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And so, sort of as this text comes together, the call to men is to sacrifice on behalf of his wife. But the call to women is to submit. Now, uh, this text, I will just freely admit, has been gravely misused um, in history uh, through the church. Um, and so, I think it's wise to say what it's not saying before I can say what it is saying. Amen? Right? It's not saying that women are less than men. Can we, say, can we just agree on that? Right? Or that women have less of the image of God than men. Right? That's ridiculous. And in fact, if we go back to Genesis 2, where Paul is quoting from, um, we might notice that creation wasn't good until the woman was made. And man, man was, was made out of a lump of mud, right? And his name, Adam, comes from the Hebrew word Adama, uh, which in our English translates to dirt, right? Um, whereas, you know, the, the woman was built, or sort of custom crafted, a very, very different language that's used there, right? And, and it was only then that creation was complete, right? And so the image... Uh, in likeness of God took both male and female. And so it's not saying that women are any less than men. It's also not saying that women should submit to all men. Right? Notice it says, submit to your own husband, one guy, if you're married. Right? It's not saying that in a marriage you need to be silent and obedient. Right? 
needing to be silent and obedient. Well, there's, there's something there. Um, it's also not saying that you can't pursue careers and leadership roles. Right? It's not saying that you should tolerate an abusive husband. Right? In fact, if you are in, a, in an abusive relationship, right, you should speak to someone you trust. Right? Get out if necessary. Get help. Right? But in the midst of this, it's also not saying that, that husbands need to submit to their wives. Right? So there is a clear command here. Right? It's telling us that before God, if you're married, your husband will be held responsible before God for the well-being of your family, of your household. And if you are married, you know that your husband needs all the help that he can get. Amen. <laughs> so, so it's saying help him out, right? Support him. Um, follow his lead. Right? What, are, what are the implications of this, though? All right, well, first off, right, it never works. This never works. Hear me again. This never works if it is demanded from the other side. Right? A story is told of a man who had just finished reading a book called Man of the House while commuting home from work. Uh, when he got home, he stormed into the house, walked up to his wife, pointed his finger in her face and said, from now on, I want you to know that I am the man of this house and my word is law. Right? You are to prepare for me a gourmet meal tonight. And when I'm finished eating my meal, I expect a sumptuous dessert afterward. Right? Then after dinner, if that wasn't enough, you're going to draw my bath so that I can relax. Right? When I'm finished with my bath, guess who's going to dress me and comb my hair? And so she thought for a moment, and she responded, the funeral director, I guess. <laughs> right? right? Suffice to say, that, that it just doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Um, but likewise, wives, it, it doesn't work if you, it, it won't work if you went home this morning or this afternoon and you said to your husband, you're supposed to die for me. Right? That won't go well. That won't go well for you. Right? Guys, the, the, the posture uh, that we're called to as followers of Christ is that of, is one of self-sacrifice, just like Jesus. Right? Ladies, um, the posture that we are called to as followers of Christ is one of self-sacrifice, just like Jesus. Right? But this is specific to marriage relationships, but I would go so far as to say that there are implications for us here in dating, marriage, or in dating relationships as well. Right? How often? How often do people go into dating relationships with this kind of perspective? Now, I, I am a chaplain on board a ship. I counsel hundreds of people who are dating, and I will tell you, if, we, uh, if men went into dating relationships, uh, approaching relationships with the grid of asking the question, is this somebody I can spend the rest of my life laying myself down to see her flourish? We would be a better core, for sure. Right? That's the Christian posture of a husband. Right? Ladies, as you, as you date guys, right, are you asking, is this a guy that I can follow? Right? Right? Some of our, I mean, uh, we may be, some of us are a little older, but um, this may relate to some of our kids as well. Right? Is this a guy that I can follow? 
that I can trust with my own spiritual welfare and that of my families as well, right? Is he a man worth following? Is he a man that can lead the household well, right? And too often the question is, what am I getting out of this? Is there enough compatibility? And I don't want to sort of downplay the importance of those questions, but if you're a follower of Christ this morning, the, most, the primary question is, am I willing to lay myself down for this person? So Paul uh, doesn't stop here. Um, he goes on to children. Uh, he goes on to children and parents. And, and remember, he's hammering home the point that in God's economy, the whole family is to be shaped by the gospel. Right? Look at, at uh, chapter 6, verse 1 with me. It says this. It says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Right? And many, many of us are, are a bit older, and so you, you might be asking the question, well, hey, I'm 42 years old. Do I still have to, have to obey my parents? No. But you do have to honor them. Right? Verse 2, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. Right? Love and show honor to them. Sometimes even when they don't deserve it, or especially when they don't deserve it. At the same time, if you are of age, you're, out, you're, you're over 18 years old, you still live in your parents' house, if they're still paying the bills, you still have to obey, right? So parents are like, yes, did you hear that? <laughs> right? <clears throat> you, you've got a level uh, of obedience that they're buying, right? So if you don't want them to, to, um, to buy it anymore, right, find a second, or a third job if you need to, another job if you, if you need to, pay your own bills and get out of the house. Right? I don't mean to be very crass, but that's just the way that it, that, that is. Right? Um, but it doesn't, doesn't end there. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath or do not exasperate your children. Um, tire them. Um, make them... Um, and sort of wear them down so that all, all that there is there is, is anger, right? Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord, right? And it goes back to men, right? We don't get off the hook here. We don't get off the hook here in this text. We are called to die in marriage, and when it comes to kids, it, it commands us not to provoke our children to anger. Certainly, this extends to moms as well, but, but, but it's primarily dads who are on the hook here. And so the question... I have to be asking uh, myself is, what are ways in which I provoke my children to anger? And, and as a father, that is not um, a difficult thing to identify. <laughs> I, have, I have two teenage boys, and, and I just love to provoke them. Uh, so uh, it's, not, it's not hard, right? It's not hard, right? But um, so just this, this, this week, I was speaking to to my wife, and she was like, so what are you preaching on? And I was telling her, and, she, and I, I sort of yelled out, children, obey your, your parents and the Lord, for this is right, so that it may go well with you and so that you may live long on the earth. Do you know what that means, Nathan? And Nathan looked at me, he's like, what? I said, that if you don't obey, you die. And he's, <laughs> and he's like, are you serious? I'm like, no, 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 right? So, so but... We, we, I mean, we, we tend to provoke our, our children at times. And, and ways that we do that is just, uh, I'm going to name just a few, right? Well-meaning, well-intentioned overprotection, 
we, we do this very, very, very often. Favoritism. When you favor one child over the other and it, and it um, becomes a very tense relationship. Unrealistic expectations that are placed on the child. And, and then also discouragement. Discouragement. Right? And to that last point, one thing that happens very often in parenting is that we approach our kids um, and it's easy to address identity rather than behavior. Right? And so, so this is, is how it goes. If, if, if one of our kids does something bad, uh, when I, say, I can say something very simple as, ah, you're such a bad kid. You're such a bad kid, right? Or you're such a lazy kid. Right? It's, it's so different than, than if I were to say, hey, that's a wrong action. That's a wrong action. If, if my son lies, I, I can say to him, I can say, you're a liar. Or, um, because that's a statement of his identity, or I can say, uh, I don't like it when you lie to me because it, it, uh, it affects my ability to trust you. Right? Very different. That speaks to behavior not necessarily to identity, right? That's different. Um, if you're a parent, uh, those statements of identity will build up over time, and it will give a kid a sense of identity that is not redemptive, and it's not centered on the gospel. Right? The adverse is true as, as well, right? We can f focus so much on the child's behavior that, uh, that, and not speak necessarily to his identity, his or her identity. Right? It feels good when people tell me that my kids are so well-behaved. It just feels great, right? It feels good. Um, and, and many times, um, they are, especially in public, right? They're very, very well-behaved in public, right? But, but it's equally as affecting when we take the risk of going out to lunch uh, with, to eat with baby Eleanor, my little baby over there, <laughs> Um, and she has a meltdown in the, in the restaurant, right? Uh, it's, it's easy for me or for us as, as parents to feel the shame as a parent, um, sort of feeling like we're showing all of our feelings in one moment, right? Has anybody felt like that before? Right. Um, at least for myself, that's just completely unrealistic on my part as a father. He's, this is a baby. Um, and it, but it feels, it feels bad, right? And so when I, but, but when I focus too much on my child's behavior, I lose sight of their ultimate identity in Christ very often, right? Um, and so I have to be careful. And one person said it like this, the, the concern of parents is not simply that their sons and daughters will be obedient to their authority, but that through this godly training and admonition, their children will come to know the Lord himself. Right, so parents bear the, the primary responsibility to catechize their kids, to point their kids to Jesus, to lead their kids in the way that leads to life. Right? Parents are called to self-sacrificially love their children and lay down their desires in order to see their children flourish. Sound familiar? Well, that extends on. And we are on third base. We're nearing home. Uh, the, the next section deals with bond servants or slaves and their masters. Um, now, this sort of requires a bit of an excursus uh, because I can read this 
Um, I can read this in our, in our 21st century context as a black man or as a person of color. Uh, and I can read this and hear Paul's admonition and think, is, is his apparent silence on the legitimacy of the institution an implicit endorsement of slavery? Does that make sense? Right? Um, why is Paul not using this as an opportunity to do away with this brutal system itself? So it requires a little bit of an excursus, right? Um, because there's so much historical complication and nuance that's there, right? When, when we use uh, the word slavery in the modern world, uh, we are approaching it in a fundamentally different way than the ancient world did. Right, particularly in the context in which the scriptures were written. Uh, slavery is not new or is not formid, foreign to the Bible. Uh, in parts of the Old Testament, Israel is in bondage. And, and it's very clear that Israel is suffering in bondage in Egypt, in enslavement. And it is a wicked and abusive system. And so when we talk about Slavery in the ancient world, there are some things worth pointing out. One, that slavery in the Roman Empire was, was often an economic agreement between uh, the person who was being enslaved and uh, the person that was, uh, that was now going to be their master. There was no welfare system. And so um, you had to, if you had a debt, you had to voluntarily, or you could voluntarily um, pay that debt off by, by um, by making yourself a bond servant um, for a number of years. Right? Sometimes these were, these were uh, conquered people that were subordinated uh, from, or to the conquering people. But either way, uh, it was not perpetual. Right? It did not transcend generations. And so the children of slaves were not sort of by nature of what lot they were born into. They were not predestined to become enslaved themselves. Right? There were opportunities for exiting enslaved status. Right? And then slaves, also slaves in the Roman Empire, uh, were often incredibly well-educated. So you'd find slaves in the higher echelons of society, um, be, and those, those people in those higher echelons were being taught by slaves. They were their teachers. Right? And that's a stark contrast to what we find in the modern slave trade were slaves for example, in the American South, were forbidden from learning to read right? because ma slave masters in the South understood that if you teach a slave to read, that they might read their Bibles, right? And they might start to raise questions about liberty and about freedom and about justice. Right? And finally, um, slavery was not, in the ancient world, it was never racialized. Right? So when we come to the idea of slavery in Paul's first century world, we're not reading about slavery that existed in, say, the Carolinas or Alabama or Mississippi or anywhere else. We are, we are not talking about the kind of slavery that took men and women from West Africa and sold them and put them on ships to British colonies in the Americas, sold them like cattle. An act, by the way, that is expressly forbidden, you need only go so far as Exodus 21. Right? We, we are talking about something other than, uh, about something that was an economic arrangement in the Greco-Roman world. Nonetheless, it was still bad, right? Um, it was still, the conditions um, sometimes were really, really terrible, which is why Paul commands masters 
those who have committed their lives to Christ, to stop their threatening. Paul understands that when two men who, who previously had an economic agreement, as soon as this man had been converted and, and been received into the household of God, that his fundamental identity with the master is now not that of a slave, but that of a brother, right? Not an employee, not a slave, but a fellow brother in the household of God for eternity. Right? In other places like Philemon, Paul doesn't hesitate to use his, his position apostolically um, because what we know from other places like Galatians 3 is that if we are in Christ, there is no Jew or Greek, there is no slave or free, there is neither male or female, we are united in Christ, and that means that in the New Testament church, you can have a bondservant, a slave, and his master in the same church, and the slave become an elder and have spiritual authority over the master, even though in earthly terms the master was still in charge. And so, no, Paul is not overthrowing the institution of slavery in Ephesians, but when he has a chance to deal with a Christian, he makes it clear in no uncertain terms what they should do. Right? So, so what in the world do we do with passages like these? I think, at least in that latter, latter part, I think the ways in which uh, we are in society are demeaned or ill-treated at times can vary. Right? It doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily or simply about, say, issues of race. It can also be issues of employment, right? How many of us have had a terrible boss that we just could body slam? I mean, it's just really don't like, right? Um, it could be issues of employment. It could be gender. Um, it could be um, ageism, it could be uh, life stage, all of those different things. When we are forced into a lower place, when we are, are shamed and put down, when we are dehumanized, then we can take solace in that low place because we now find ourselves in the company of Jesus Christ. Right? Those of us, and I say us, in, in positions of privilege and power need to hear this. Right? That, that the Lord Jesus who was spat upon and misused by powerful people who was poor and homeless, who spent his life, entire life in ministry helping people that we try our best to avoid. Right? That this Jesus is not impressed with our pedigree. He, he's not impressed with what school we went to with our resumes or our positions we've gained or our validating performance records that we haven't tarnished. Right? He says that the things we aspire to in order to make a name for ourselves, every single one of those aspirations we'll have to give an account for. Right? So if you have a place of privilege and power, how are you stewarding that? As, as Christians, we don't push others down uh, in order to keep or maintain or further our own status, but instead we choose to lay ourselves down self-sacrificially in love so that others might flourish. Sound familiar? Right, church, there are, there are just some dynamics that are here um, that are worked out here in the, uh, with families and husbands. With, with husbands and wives, children and parents, bond servants and masters, 
But all of them come down to this basic principle. It comes down to a, a position of posture, right? Um, and our posture should be that of Christ's. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who, who came down in the flesh and again and again laid himself down so that others would flourish, so that others would be reconciled to God, so that others could be seen and loved, right? The gospel transforms every one of our relationships. And if you're in Christ, your life will begin to look like his more and more, right? And so rather than advancing ourselves and leveraging our positions for our own status, we will finally be free, free to lay ourselves down to see others come into the household of God and flourish in their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. Self-sacrificial love right, for the flourishing of others. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.